0: Welcome to GeoThoughts Talks. I'm Drew Brush. In GeoThoughts Talks, we bring you lectures from our team, partners, and collaborators on topics important to the GeoThink audience. GeoThink's Summer Institute may have concluded over a month ago, but for those of you who missed it, we bring you three talks to remember. In this second talk, Entitled A Deeper Dive into Crowdsourcing, Advanced Topics in Crowdsourcing and Civic Crowdfunding, Robert Goodspeed spends the morning covering three topics of inherent interest to anyone involved in crowdsourcing work. During this talk, he focuses on three areas new to his own research, including crowdfunding, formal crowdsourcing, and the tool Ushahidi. Each of these topics helps prepare listeners for being a crowdsourcing professional. Run as part of GeoThink's five-year Canadian Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council partnership grant, the Summer Institute aimed to provide undergraduate and graduate students from partners with knowledge and training in theoretical and practical aspects of crowdsourcing. Each day of the Institute alternated morning lectures, panel discussions, and in-depth case studies on topics in crowdsourcing with afternoon work sessions where professors worked with student groups one-on-one on their proposal to meet a challenge posed by the City of Ottawa. See more on our website, on the Summer Institute. We'll a black, really cash there. so I'm sure how will do
1: that, but there we go. so I had a chunk of time this morning. So um, what I planned has several different facets. So um, really, before I start, I just wanted to show you really briefly a, a park-related web application, my old agency. Boston Watson created. Um, it's not a crowdsourcing per se, but I think there's a lot of uh, potential inspiration for the pro- problem we're looking at. Um, and then really I have kind of three things to, sh- to share with you. Two are works of progress in my research um, that are related to, pro- uh, one is about crowdfunding, another is corporate uh, crowdsourcing. And then um, the last one is I want to briefly introduce um, the tool Ushkini and uh, show you what that looks like. And then um, I think on the program we'll transition and the idea is that you could sign up for it and play around with it a little bit. Uh, and then later on, I, I believe Renee will be describing a project where they use this software tool um, for a community development project. Can um, I just ask how many uh, took a look at the readings? Okay, good. So you've you heard about of the, um, the uh, reading from some of the GeoPink uh, authors about uh, using... So before I start the park line here, so this is a web mapping application, um, an agency I work with in partnership with uh, Parks Advocates created. And uh, as you can see, um, at, at the top you can see it says select your neighborhood, select your activity, type of park name, uh, or you can click directly on of park get details. And so to build this uh, we had a parks layer which had limited attributes and the boundaries um, but really what we wanted was this uh, detailed activity information which my, uh, I haven't looked in detail at what City of Ottawa has but my hunch is that this is kind of lacking. So we had to really develop that and um, the other aspect of this is within the park boundary, there are points that represent different facilities and um, monuments and things. And so, of uh, that data, it's actually going to be created. I think there was a summer intern that drove around all the parks in Boston. So, maybe you could that. But then, the, the concept was something analogous to what I think they said they wanted, where you pick an activity, let's say ice skating, and the, the parks where you can do that activity pop up. And, uh, the interface and interactions a little wonky, but the guy created this about right after we finished the first version. Oh. But um, gives you some idea. Um, okay. Um, so before I launch in my project, um, my, my two, pro- two projects and the third one, I, I wanted to um, orient us a little bit um, uh, in relation to what you heard from Garrett. So overview, um, and so uh, I think it's useful. This word is used in much more diverse ways than we're using it at this institute. Um, and so of course, it's about outsourcing, which has a, a economic connotation. Uh, maybe it's about distributed data collection, things like OpenStreetMap. Uh, you'll hear about this project later. This is Garen's uh, project. Um, uh, there's something I referred to it yesterday. There's an article about collective intelligence, um, and so there's a, folks in Melbourne, Australia, that put a an urban plan, a urban, urban planning, on a wiki, and then had people just edit it, through the wrong. So take that to your planning class. Um, so there are people out there doing things like that. Maybe it's about public goods, maybe the government is a platform, uh, and some others. So I, I very quickly was looking at Darren's framework, and I've decided that what I'm going to show you fits in two places. So one might be a very specific, uh, we go, a very specific version of knowledge discovery and management, and the other two are other choices outside of the, the box. Darren, so. Uh, good morning. And you just see me uh, discussing your, your ideas. So, and uh, and, and they're, they're out of the box for a couple of reasons. So crowdfunding are um, efforts to raise funds online. So there's actually a lot of money changing hands. And, and um, it's actually kind of outside of the state and has some unique characteristics. So uh, we'll talk about that. So I don't think it's an information or There is ideation or ideas um, uh, involved, but um, it's a little bit different thing. And, uh, and then uh, this crisis response, it's often about aggregating information, but there's a very tight link to the use of the information and in, in actually um, a response and in action. And so I think for those reasons, it's a little bit different than these other categories. Um, okay, so the, the first one, and the, uh, these slides are from a more detailed presentation, so we don't need to dwell on every cell or every table. But um, in essence here, what the argument is, is it's showing you how Uh, a methodology which reaches a crowd um, can be related to existing kind of GIS or visual preference methodologies. And so uh, I'm trying to relate these two and show how when we um, engage crowds, we actually need new methods to analyze data. Um, So let me uh, get into this a little bit. Um, Okay, so there's uh, uh, in planning and and, uh, the design field, there's an idea of doing visual preference surveys, and the way you typically do this is it's done kind of in a public meeting with a slideshow and then they, um, the participants provide different ratings. Um, and so um, researchers use similar methods to investigate people's preferences for all different types of landscapes. And so this just gives you a sense and pretty much uh, most of them have to use a pretty limited set of images that they've selected or created somehow. Uh, they're often photos, they some simulations. And um, so a couple of these were done online, that reached a few more people. Um, but then the question is, um, with crowdsourcing, we can really increase these numbers, and, uh, and that's the point of this, the paper. And so in the paper, we have about 362 images, which it could have been much larger, that's just what we ended up with, and um, there was over 7,000 respondents. So it's kind of an order of magnitude different than what um, people in the literature have been doing for about 50 years. And so this, to me, is interesting dimension of uh, crowdsourcing. And so, um, okay, so it's something about preferences, something about images, how does it really work? And so um, what we did was we had a a database of these observation points and people were shown um, images, I'll show you what the website looked like, and they picked their uh, preferred image from two. So every vote was a vote between two options. Um, So we got 103,000 votes um, from the 7,400 visitors. Then the question is, how do you analyze this? So it's a problem with crowdsourcing, big, messy data sets. So um, for the paper, we propose a ranking algorithm to produce a beauty score for every individual. Um, and then uh, another part of this paper, which I think um, the latest news is this might become two papers, it seems like what the editors want, uh, is uh, preferences can be related to the urban environment. And so we use GIS to compute uh, a bunch of indicators about um, urban design, Greenness, etc. And we can explain about 40% of people's preferences based on street trees density Uh, So kind of go about a little bit so this is the website Uh, And every visitor was shown this when you voted you were shown two more Um, We're not the only folks to do something like this. There's a project at MIT doing this. There's a school at Ohio State doing this Um, People have different ideas about um, what the question should be and what to do with the resulting of this uh, tool was created by um, uh, two Code for America people in Philadelphia. It was hosted by Open Plans, a nonprofit based in New York City, um, and uh, kind of a one off project. For them. And so they, um, Open Plans is associated with this urban blog called Street Walk, and uh, Street Walk, and they promoted this, and it became uh, kind of took off thoroughly and so that's where the voters came from. It wasn't all recruitment, it was uh, volunteers. Um, so uh, I think that uh, this project kind of illustrated one thing with these uh, open participatory platforms, which is um, with, without placing restrictions, you actually tend to get geographically very heterogeneous kind of groups. So um, let's see. Uh, 14% of respondents were Canadian, so it's kind of interesting. But we have people from all these other countries, not uh, huge numbers, but um, you know, comparison, and from all different U.S. states. And so um, this is an issue, I started with Renee last night and we each had papers we were write once we had the time. So you yeah. know, I think this is an issue for participation in, in planning and um, an issue about about uh, engagement online. And uh, I, I don't think we should say that this is uh, a priori a that thing. Um, and in fact, there might be people who are former residents or part-time residents who have friends, et cetera, and um, who wanna be engaged in the planning and design of, of the tool. Uh, but you might think about your tool, you know, the, the web's being very open, um, who's the audience wanna reach, how do you wanna reach it? And it actually might be very ideal to try to reach um, not only residents, but those tourists. Um, and then there's some other, other data here. Uh, okay, so we have all these votes so how do we need to um, convert them into an index? And um, so I immediately thought of there's a kind of simple algorithm a rating system created by this character. He's a physicist who was a chess fanatic, and he invented um, the uh, mechanism by which they rate chess grandmasters. So in chess, every competition is between two people. How do you know? Um, how do you create an ordered list of all the all active chess players? And so um, this slide provides a summary of this, and in essence. Uh, You uh, provide the same score to everyone and then after each competition use a formula to adjust the points. Uh, I believe there's a normalcy requirement underneath all this, Uh, but my conclusion from looking into the technical weeds was that uh, it works pretty well. And so I said that's fine uh, for my purposes. So what did we find? So out of these 300, the 300 I should say were chosen at random from within the city of Philadelphia. And so this Again, done very mechanically, just the voting data, run through my algorithm, this is the result. Um, there's no adjustments. So the first was Rinkhouse Square, a world-famous historical square with wonderful urbanism, a street cafe, uh, next to a park. So a lot of characteristics we think people might like. The second was an alley I'd never heard of, um, also in Center City, um, also had three trees, uh, fairly narrow, had this uh, sort of architecture, et cetera. So I thought this was intriguing because it was producing um, a non-intuitive result. Um, and I have a, a lot more in other slides in the draft paper I can share with you. But let's just jump to the end of the list to see, make sure that end is working, too. Well, yes, it's Schuylkill Expressway, so these kind of three-way views are all the way at the bottom. And one of the peer reviewers was like, well, well, didn't we know that? You know, I said, well, that's not the point of the paper, right? It, um, I wanted to actually produce consistent results that would be similar to the older method um, uh, because it, it, we could do that in the has." Uh, Okay, so what about this urban design part? Um, This is uh, maybe more of the GIS students' uh, interest, so uh, in the urban design literature, um, well, first of all, there's uh, competing approaches to the built environment, so I'm I'm kind of thinking about urban design, that this isn't the only um, approach into this kind of uh, research, and so uh, in the literature, people talk about there being certain characteristics that come from kevin lynch's um, famous theory of urban design so it's an imageability enclosure human scale transparency and complexity so we created a whole bunch of indicators and this slide shows them organized into these different categories uh, just to show you what, what it looks like so we had to um, take gis data and create continuous indicators the red points are the different observation points uh, and then the, this map is showing the street tree density which is one of our met measures. I think it's related to the grid density uh, of the city, because um the center city is a historic park with its narrow streets. <coughs> uh, this is just another one intersection density It's a commonly used urban design. To be good. And uh, uh, in essence, uh, what you can see so uh, all of the coefficients. Well, just, uh, this is just our linear regression. We did a spatial model. It's not uh, shown here. Um, all of these are significant. So, what explains people's preferences? Street trees, intersection density, uh, street length, so that's getting at the block size. Uh, Portion of properties with windows is negative. Uh, no one likes ugly modern commercial buildings. Uh, Portion of built land, which is a, me- a measure of uh, enclosure. Uh, parks, open space, historic buildings. Uh, properties with active uses, number of buildings so, uh, we have pretty uh, strong intuition that these, these variables would be related. Uh, there's an extensive amount of data challenges associated with this research and a lot of research like this that we can discuss. Um, and uh, uh, I made lots of harassing phone calls to the assessing department until they mailed me the city. So, that's, you know, um, uh, Anyway, that we the process of data a it bit easier. So, um, that's the results of the model. So um, where are we going from this? So I, you know, I think th- this is crowdsourcing in that a crowd was engaged, but it's, it's the most structured form of participation. And so in my world, um, within a planning project or a, a collaborative effort, there you can uh, these sort of structured tools can be plugged in. Uh, but I, I think there are others in the field that uh, would like to replace you know, all participatory engagement with highly structured engagement which I'm not advocating for. Um, But I do still think that um, within the context where there is stakeholder engagement, there's a sense we wanna do a broader survey of preferences. We have some questions we wanna get an answer to. Um, This is kind of refined version of what you could get from uh, traditional survey methodology. And certainly you're reaching many more people and in theory you're able to do a lot more comparisons between different types of streets and cetera. And so I think there's a uh, kind of variety of different ways this, this could be. Uh, yeah. So, any questions about that, or any like any of you kind of GIS analysts who got really excited about my indicators? Uh, there, saw there was a hand up here. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, <clears throat> this
2: might be a really basic question because I don't do survey type research, mm-hmm. but I'm curious. while well, I'm listening to to you in the talk yesterday. It seems like when the results from crowdsourcing come out, that's when methodologically, you so start to talk about why the results might look as the survey. To me, it sounds like a different approach to research than what a typical survey would have been like before. This was done on the internet and you're just sort of sending it out to whoever wants to visit the Trump. Is that the case? Like, I'm hearing you say, you know, that these results might be this way because people voted in this category or they didn't vote in this category. People voted in this category and they're influenced by this or whatever, and it shows
1: Does that make this kind of survey research very different than other types of survey research that we've done in the past, Crowdsourcing a particular type of research? I'll answer it, and you can tell me if there's parts of your question I didn't answer. So the big puzzle is I've done a survey, and the only thing we asked them was to vote. And so why was that? It's because I didn't do a survey these uh, hipster coders did. it. And I stepped in and said, well, you have no idea what you're going to do with the data. And they're like, yeah, Rob, you're right. And I said, well, give it to me. And (laughs) I got an idea about how to analyze it. And so that's why this paper is about the method. So they did another one in Denver. And I said, what would be great is if you could use the browser to store the location of the people voting. And I actually wanted to collect the full suite of demographic information, which is um, a kind of typical survey method because it enables you to compare groups and compare pair uh, people's preferences vis-a-vis these other characteristics and so they said we can't do that this is a participatory tool and I begged them and they said okay We'll, we'll store their location and so when you loaded um, the browser they use HTML5 which has the location capability said do you want to share your location It stored the latitude and longitude generated and so um, You probably you guys probably know better than my planning students how this works. So it could be um, Sometimes if it's done for IP, it's really fuzzy. It's the centroid of the zip code other times, if it's um, through a mobile device, it's like pretty precise, but you don't know what you're getting because of the way it works. So anyway, they had this data set, and then uh, I didn't get the download, and they emailed them, and then it got hacked, and the database got corrupted, and I don't have the data from Denver. So we didn't do the paper on Denver, but we were thinking about this this issue, and so and that's why this is framed in that way. And so, um, uh, but maybe just just for your information, there there's now an intriguing kind of middle ground. So um, some uh, market research companies have realized that you can have a non-random sample, but if you know a lot of characteristics of that sample and then you also know characteristics of the sample that you're trying to generalize to through uh, weighting or breaking or other statistical matching, other statistical techniques, you can get a reliable estimate of the the population uh, without taking random samples. So what does that mean? That means instead of taking a random sample of the US population or the Canadian and doing a phone survey for politics, you can um, get an opportunistic online sample and then collect a ton of background, what's your race, your age, where do you live, et cetera, and then use that to adjust their responses and come out with an estimate um, that would be just as accurate as, as if you did the random sample. And so that's the kind of cutting edge of survey research. It's not, so where does the crowd fit into that, I don't know, but I think it's kind of related. All of this is sort of related because it's like technology forcing us to rethink our methodologies and rethink, you know, how, how things work. And so maybe what this kind of highlights, is not only about the technology of voting, which does require, you know, web coding stuff. It's also about the, the analysis in the background. And this is a case where there's a set, and I'm... I didn't make up that ELO algorithm, I'm just showing that, you know, we've never used it in have preferences we need to use it. So, um, I'm not an expert in these statistical techniques, but they're partly invented, it's a duality thing. They're invented to respond to problems, but then, you know, these new ways of collecting data means we need to develop them even more, so. Does that, so that was, that was all about survey methodology. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. there's some other element but, to what you're asking. No, no, that,
2: that, okay. that, that's something that doesn't get to what I
0: was asking, but
2: it, um, I guess what I'm hearing is that methodologically, I'm asking partly because if you want to offer as part of the office, you or something else that so you use crowdsourcing, a promise of some data that will be useful again. Maybe you can't do that with crowdsourcing. Maybe what I'm hearing is that it's a little more like you don't set up the boundaries and try to determine the bias before, in the data before you put the data. You actually Ask a question and then say, okay, now let's look at it and see what we can do with this information. Is that more of how how you use information collection crowdsourcing? Rather than what I imagine the previous model of surveying people, or like the political surveys that you were just talking about, where you would say, let's think about what a random sample would look like. Before you even call anybody, you know you have an expectation of what the data will tell you. Uh,
1: I think it's all about the application because um, and I, I think I view things much more on spectrums and in different areas because it's all about um, use, what you want to use it for, and and so uh, I, I think we've been we've been trained so much that there's only one way to do research, and that's quantitative, statistically rigorous, etc. But I'm a mixed methods researcher. i mean for for generating ideas, I don't care if it's a representative sample, it's about the creativity of the idea, so it's all about what is that use, and then how does the use relate to the value. So what will determine the usefulness, and if if um, representativeness is how the usefulness will be determined, then you cannot, um, then, uh, no, I would use this, but then I would have like a huge demographic panel, and then I would be breaking and waiting, and I would like Prove to them that it was representative. Okay. But um, if it's exploring preferences in urban environments and demonstrating a method, then basically a grab bag of people was fine for me. You know, that still was useful for my, for my purpose. But I think you're thinking along the right lines, so then I would get to the level where it's like, what are we going to try to do? And, Um, what what will we need to to make it it useful? I think the the X factor is what you gain from crowdsourcing is not statistical rigor, it's like expansiveness or the number of ideas or the diversity of ideas and and those can be measured and those are useful and are important and um, although your quantitative methods faculty might kind of not (laughs) not be or a different way of thinking about the purpose of um, fairly large and yeah. Um, so I like the focus on the diversity of ideas. I really like creativity in my research, and I like seeing that from
2: the audience. And I you mean, know, I love crowdsourcing. But um, make sure I just want to make sure I understand. So when participants were looking at the two streets, they basically just voted. That's it. Yeah. And so how is that creative? How are we using the knowledge? It's not. Okay. So. So pushing that forward a little bit more, um, and having them go between these two things. When I looked at that and you showed the two streets, I was like, I don't think either of us meets the criteria of beauty for me mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. And so, if you were presenting that to me, I would say either to say next or skip or like, you know, I don't like these two streets or whatever. Um, or did you have to answer to move to the next?
1: Uh, the way this school was created, not by me, was you had to answer, um, but uh, you're raising an, another key thing, which is uh, through design, we can change the structure and of the data set we would elicit, and so uh, I've also seen, the, the guys at MIT, um, well, they sort of come around, they finally figured out that this literature exists, but they they initially w- had the, the kind of craziest prompts, and their idea was like, create a global index of every city in the world and compare its its funkiness or I I forgot the prompt so you know um, how you use this method and maybe maybe the choosing between the two isn't right and and, uh, but providing other options is but then it prompts us to think through what are the methods we're going to need to make sense of the resulting data and the reminder the theme my theme is I'm like at the extreme edges of Darren's model and maybe in maybe out but I'm kind of for the purpose of the workshop, helping us get a broad spectrum. So when you bump into things like this, people say, "Oh, I crowdsource preferences," and you look at it and you're like, "That's the most structured narrow thing possible." You can sort of remember, okay, well, that people use the term to describe things like that. It, it, it is, in some ways, it is a knowledge acquisition thing. Although, um, what you're asking them is the most minute kind of you know, feedback. Yeah. And then this may be my ignorance about the urban
2: planning discipline, um, but. or reinvigorate, you know, old problems that we've run into, what are some of those old problems that, you know, you can suggest that we consider in our project today that, you know, you think crowdsourcing may help us to, you know, push forward on or, or you know, improve upon? Um, I don't know if you addressed uh, that in the discussion or your Yeah, you no,
1: guys no, I, <laughs> I don't know, you have to, uh, it's a big world, so I'm not, you, yeah, you can, we can discuss later this afternoon about what problems you want to tackle, but I,
0: I suppose the, the studies here,
1: there's uh, it's really from like environmental psychology and, it's, and so that, that's the sorts of, of theories um, and it's empirical studies of aesthetic preferences and of human responses to the environment. And so that, that's the, the literature that I was gesturing towards, but frankly in planning this is more of uh, visual preferences are also a, um, actually, actually Visual preference surveys are used more as a professional tool than they are as the a research tool in our field.
0: Although there are some
1: people who have used it for various things, and you could think, you know, but it, but it can it can feed into different things. Like I've seen uh, more economic type type analyses as well. Um, there's a great book by Jack Nasser called The Evaluative Image of the City. He's the planning scholar who's probably gone the most into visual preferences and their importance in explaining, you know, people's. Uh, Understanding and valuation of urban form, of different neighborhoods, um, and so he's the, the one the one person to But it's not my area, really. You know, I'm, I'm the method. i from my angle. I'm I have kind of a methodological contribution here, but um, you know, uh, but there are there are some who would use it that way. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify, you said there was no option to skip. That uh, you weren't sure to decide between the two. I, I'm not sure. I saw in one of your Did you series. see on Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right there. Ah, oh, there was, yeah. So there was a skip option. It's very small. At the time. So, But uh, there's a design choice not to record skips. So my data, that's why I didn't remember data. the data set didn't have any skips in it. So, um, and in fact, through the um, way they coded the choice, um, occasionally out of all the votes, there would be the same street shown on both sides and in the data set I could see people voted for one or the other because it threw off the algorithm. <laughs> so I thought I kind of made an error in my computations and I went back through it, and sure enough that's what was, uh, the total number of points become shouldn't change because they're just being shifted. Um, but anyway, uh, they did change because you're voting on the same two, um, you're kind of creating new points, you know. Um, anyway. Any other? Thoughts about this. So, um, I really, uh, if if you want to teach her more, um, so um, there's a planning faculty at Ohio State University, uh, Jennifer Evans Kelly, and she's very interested in these new technologies in our field, and so um, she got interested in this and coded something called Street Scene. And um, she coded it so that you can create your own study, like, really quickly and easily. You just sign up for free. Um, and you draw an area, and then it uh, pulls Google Street View images randomly from that area according to the number that you want. And um, you have some other option. If I recall, you couldn't quite do what I wanted, but it's a lot more um, than, uh, well, it, 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 it enables you to do something. So um, that could be something intriguing to take a look at if this might play a role in your, in your projects somehow, or in the future, you want to look at this. You know. Yeah. So, what was it Called Street Scene, I think, unless being confused at Ohio State. Uh, I can, I should have probably included that. I can look it up and share with you later so. <clears throat> so. we got some uh, preferences going on with some voting and that angle. So um, this is, we're going kind of to shift, shift gears um, way over to the other side of the map there. And so this is about something called crowdfunding. And I thought, uh, so the, you saw the, um, Rodrigo Davies, um, he's a collaborator of mine, he's a, a former MIT a graduate student, he's going doctorate at Stanford. And so we're, this is work that we did together, and I think you can see it um, cited as draft work in his paper. So. Um, but uh, we're trying to figure out exactly what direction to go but I have a lot of empirical findings to, to share and i wanted to start this out um, by showing a youtube video uh, which i think will convey as much as anything the funky world of there are all sorts of farms out there <laughs> probably however, I see farms, like the of Jackson Found.
2: This week's season, should... actually a farm on a truck that brings fresh veggies and lessons about them going to your door and you can eat straight from the garden. The back of With
0: our garden we take it to schools mostly. So anywhere there's a big group of kids aggregated, we can take them and we use it as a prop to connect kids to food and health. We wanted our
2: children to see that you really could just about an any place, and the fact that
1: they grow in the back of a truck is pretty amazing. And so we saw a big need, like an opportunity to say, hey, you know what, if we can show kids what plants where our food comes from, then maybe they will start understanding that what they need
3: makes a big difference. And we set up programming depending on what the schools want, things like set up school gardens, cooking classes,
2: nutrition education, talk food systems. I think So uh, I'll cut
1: it kind of short. This is like a cringe-worthy scene where she's like eats a chai, like, you know, so but, uh, you know she kind of acts like she hasn't had a fresh vegetable in a while, It's disturbing, <laughs> but I think she's trying to play it out. So so what on earth is this thing? Well, this is an example from a data set we constructed of um, what Rodrigo calls civic crowdfunding. So um, not only do people put these type of projects on generic crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter, um, this one actually here on Kickstarter. Um, but there have emerged a number of um, websites, the specific purpose of which is to um, elicit um, different types of civic projects and raise funding for them. So who creates the ideas? Well, all kinds of people. We, um, and uh, this one, they raise. Uh,
3: I think it's actually been around the same
1: total. They got about $4,000 um, to do this um, kind of project. And um, we'll get later into trying to characterize uh, all of the projects. Um, this is a, another website you may have heard of in New York City called uh, In Our Backyard, I-O-B-Y. And uh, kind of like a twist on NIMBYism. IOB I-O-B-Y. And so, uh, this is an example, this is kind of a a community mural project. Um, They raised $2,000 to uh, create a mural. And this is more for my purpose than yours. This is some other illustrations. So there's a a kind of block upgrade beautification project. Uh, After Hurricane Sandy, there was a project at IOBY to raise money to make soup and bring it to people in the Rockaways. I hope they like the soup they made. There's a a project, a bicycle-powered ice cream club, and a truck farm, and lots of others. Have any of you um, created a a civic crowdfunding project or donated money to one? Okay, what what were the projects in this year? Mine's for a local community group that I'm working with. We're just trying to get enough funding to incorporate and get a staff, so that's really to get the NGO started.
2: Great. What's the focus of the uh, group? it's called We Grow Food. It's all about turning grill gardening into something that's not so growing. Grill gardening is uh, just squatting on a piece of land and growing food anywhere.
1: So we're so working with
2: municipalities to find ways to make it more legal. Okay. There's one other hand somewhere. Yeah. I just donated,
1: uh, you donated? okay projects. What well, there's one other Person donated. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah, we um, uh, these, these things aren't so unusual. So so the you, you know you might have seen this uh, chart before. I, I think part of it is sort of things like this start to make sense when you have like pretty high high internet connectivity penetration and use. And so this is. Um, the top-level chart from the Pew Internet and American Life Survey um, which is sometimes critiqued but it's the best data we have until the census data comes online uh, more robustly where, um, you know, re- really uh, there's a, a kind of reason why uh, things are a lot different uh, back here um, a few years back. Um, than today. And so uh, I describe these platforms. So this is a, a table of um, kind of the different platforms. So uh, Kickstarter is the most well-known but um, uh, Goatail is um, Spanish, um, there's Catarse, which is Brazilian, so this is now a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, there's one, uh, Neighborly is kind of a smaller one, and there's a, uh, uh, Rodrigo used to work for Space Hive, which is based in the UK, and I think got his interest going about this topic. And so I suppose the conclusion here to, to see that they're, they're quite diverse in their approaches, the rules they use about who can uh, put projects up, uh, and uh, whether they're funded. Uh, flexible funding is whether you have to hit your goal to get your money or not. Um, and uh, uh, they have different fee structures, et cetera. So, and this sort of gives you an idea of the magnitude. So uh, we constructed a data set. So from the Type 1 platforms, which are all civic, um, crowdfunding is basically a full universe. Um, type 2 involved some kind of uh, sifting process to figure out which ones were being tagged or categorized as civic and which were So, uh, out of the type one platforms, it's about three and a half million dollars. Uh, type two, the civic projects, it's about seven million. And in total, um, we've got about ten million dollars going on. So, that's for the world, that's not very much. Um, but, you know, our, our intuition was this is an important new phenomenon in, in urban development. We need to kind of wrap our heads around. And so then this raised the question of what on earth are people raising those $10 million to do? And uh, we did an exercise of going through the data set and categorizing them. And it's one of the most challenging qualitative uh, tagging uh, projects I've ever been involved in because every, my hypothesis was um, every crowdfunding project has at least three dimensions. So it's not only about gardening, it's about food. It's not only about youth, it's about bicycles. You know, I, I sort of imagined this world where you had three wheels and you would spin them and then it would produce like the combination of words of being crowdfunding project. So they're very eclectic, they're very all in that, and that's what's kind of cool about it, I think. And so, but yes, uh, uh, parks and uh, gardens, that kind of rough category was the most popular. About a third of them are in that category, so it's like urban and greening was like this a huge uh, focus. Um, and maybe not by coincidence, the life platform. Um, for whatever reason has really gotten linked in with all these different gardening groups and so they use it avidly. So this, again, is just a kind of, these are descriptive statistics. Uh, might be reflecting about which sectors have sort of latched onto this. A lot of interest in food, a lot of events, etc. Some things, so uh, this, you know, kind of gives you an idea of what people are doing. So kind of a related question is, people use the word Civic kind of extremely liberally these days and um, and so we, we kind of went back to first principles. And so you might be familiar from some of your coursework that um, economists have this simple typology of types of goods. And so a private good. So there's two dimensions: the excludability and the um, rivalry of the good. And so uh, things that are non-excludable and non-rival are classical public goods, uh, you know, national defense, clean air, etc. And uh, and those that are that are um, the opposite, in the other corner there, are private goods, and um, this reminds us that there's um, these mixed goods, common, common pool resources, and club goods. And so, you know, this was my way of thinking. I even found like a, a private small business that was like crowdfunding to like expand their coffee shop, and they're like, "This is good for the community." I'm like, "Yeah, but you own your business. Like, what?" what? So this is my way of saying, "Where are people falling?" And. Um, we're not judging them for having different definitions than I have. They use a kind of analytical lens to go through and do some coding. And so, any guesses about how many, what percent were actually public goods in the end? Anyone? According to our take on it, <laughs> 5, 60, 10, 5, five small. So it, it's maybe not as low as you feared, but pretty much, you know, so about 50% kind of seem to fit that category. And we were pretty inclusive, like community gardens that seemed pretty open. We're like, okay. Um, and uh, uh and then a good number in other categories, you know, a lot of non nonprofit organizations raising money for their their specific facilities or their training programs, which is kind of hard to say is a public good, but it's it's kind of publicly spirited. And um and a good party number, 21%, we thought were private goods. So, classic example. A lot of those were like, um, you know, I'm trying to crowdfund to create a map or a directory, which I'll then sell. But it's a directory of local foods or community gardens. So, you know, it's not that these are selfish projects. It's just that from a kind of economist's worldview, um, it's probably not, you know, a public good in the same way, because they're going to be selling products. Uh, but anyway, but my conclusion from this exercise was that um, these kind of activities, it's probably not the, the right way to look at them because they're, um, they're doing this, you kind of miss the nuance about what
3: people are doing. Um,
1: and then one other question here we wanted to know is uh, what, are, what are the neighborhoods where people are doing these projects? And so uh, one platform in particular, il uh, asks for a street address, and so then we're able to kind of go through, clean it up, and geocode the street addresses. And They particularly focus on New York City, so almost all the projects are in New York, and so which was nice because it had a pretty high density in one city. Um, and so I, I created two maps. Um, this one shows percent people in poverty, and the dots are all web projects. And so um, I've scrutinized this, you know, carefully, and I think there's a there might be a conclusion that it's at the, the in the gentrifying areas where these projects seem to pop up. Um, they're not in Park Slope. They're near nearby, you know, New York. Um, uh, you know, this, well, you can see the map. This is a more affluent area, so they're in the vicinity, but up, getting into more lower income areas. But there are a good number in the Bronx, which is fairly low income, and in Harlem. And there's not that many in the Upper East Side, the richest one of the richest parts of the city. So it's so anyway. Let's just say uh, I didn't um, strongly confirm or disconfirm our hypothesis that. This, you know, this might have really strong equity effects in the city, and it's a, it's a more mixed story uh, than um, I think I mean, we thought we might find. And the second one here, so this, so this is just percent in poverty. This is the median income. So they're not exactly the inverse. Um, they're measuring slightly different things, and uh, and so this again, you know, doesn't doesn't tell an extremely strong story. It's, it's almost. Uh, It might not be about these straight socioeconomic things. I think I concluded it might also be about um, kind of neighborhood typology. So these are single family working class homes, as a TV show know know, not that vacant land, not that much kind of dense community activism um, versus this part of uh, Brooklyn, which is very dense. There's still some vacant land, a lot of community groups, a lot of uh, effort. So anyway, maybe something about social capital or the structure of these neighborhoods. Um, in a more broad way than just this income number. Uh, so anyway, but if you start telling a friend about civic crowdfunding and they say, well, that's terrible, only the rich neighborhoods will do it, um, we have a that's not true. And um, it might be, uh, there's a missing kind of dimension here which is um, uh, demand or need for these sort of community building activities. Uh, this, the, the bottom line takeaway is this is the percent poverty of attracts with, uh, with projects. And it's slightly higher than tracks without projects, but um, you know, there's, there's uh, less than 1% difference between students. So, uh, thoughts about civic crowdfunding? Yeah? Yeah, so I so came in a little bit late. I was trying to think about it, sort of maybe before digitally enabled civic crowdfunding and thinking about how you know, like parents' groups at school would like to band together. A you know, That's sort of like old fashioned kind of crowdfunding. And I don't know, I, so I wonder like, what's new about this compared to what you know groups of citizens have done in for communities forever. I and mean, even
3: compared yeah. to like,
1: answer is um, that's the question that that I pose, I pose and it's everyone poses and um, it's very difficult to nail down because um, it's uh, so I, I my takeaway is these these online systems have made visible and made tractable for analysis a lot of aspects of society for which there are no data sets and so it's actually empirically very hard to say what is different and whether or not but then again there's this there's a historical issue where, um, you know, are you comparing um, online versus offline today, or online today versus offline in the 1990s when we had a very different society? So I, I, you know, I, I don't know. So, in a, uh, but no, I'm, I don't make that case. I think some of the more kind of activist people like, believe this is a big brand new thing. And I know, of course, not. Community development is. Like as old as dirt, like in cities, so you know. Um, and, and
3: in fact, the
1: paper I think where this is going is um, relating this to um, kind of theories of community development. And, I, and I actually, so the, from a planning point of view, what's a little problematic about this is um, there's no democratic deliberation or choice. It's just individuals who are putting on projects, and they get money and they do it. But it's impacting the public realm. It's impacting the community, and so you know, that's. What we're working through are ideas related to that, and my conclusion is, while well, there's no deliberation, there's a lot of kind of democratic norms. Actually, I think being encouraged by this, there's uh, lots of discussions below each one about the merits of each project. Um, the voting is by dollars, but as you've seen, it's not like millionaires are popping in here and just bribing the ones they want. It's it's really a proxy for a, a broader gauge of how many people are excited about the idea. And, so our, I think the argument will be because it's potentially beneficial in that it's for promoting norms of it's a good idea for neighbors to generate a lot of ideas discuss which ones they want and the ones that have support implemented. But but that's, yeah, that, that's the kind of avenue we're going, going towards. But um, is it new? Um, no, of course not. And, and uh, you know, does this replace taxation? Well, $10 million is like a tiny drop in the bucket for only one city. So obviously not. Um, there are Uh, proponents online you can find that uh, like kind of approach this from a conservative, libertarian, anti-tax point of view, but I think they're a little bit um, mistaken about what what it really means. And that's the results, you know, I think the results we found about what people are actually doing with it, show that in almost every case, it's not something the government provides. So, you know, we, that's another conclusion that we drew from this paper is it's, it's not a replacement of the state, it's not outsourcing the state, it's actually, in the same way that community development has always been a largely extra you know, governmental activity, this is an extra governmental activity, in the U.S., at least, so. Other questions? Is this crowdsourcing? Anyone? <laughs> There's a crowd, they're voting, they're talking about things. <laughs> The crowd, you know, in theory, of, of a bunch of people can hear the ideas, and not all of them are funded. So. Well, Darren, maybe we could plug um, Nextop Design into this. So you run Nextop Design, and then you run a crowdfunding to to get the money to build it. So. Um, Mm-hmm. You
0: know, if somebody donates a certain level they have
2: more of a say in
1: what the final design features are or something like that. Um, I think hybrids are kind of faster. Like you donate a thousand dollars of R&D to decide what we plan to do, right? To decide what we plan, right, what we plan right at the bottom of the quarter. A little tension with democratic uh, yeah. norms there, but um, certainly intriguing. Um, Rodrigo at SpaceHive in the UK, they one of their big projects was a community center which was Designed and approved by um, by a community, and um, but the the crowdfunding kind of produced like a third of the funding you know, as kind of a matching grant. So, so I I think that raises the issue of kind of what is the governance model going to be, and there's I think a lot of room for a lot of mixed arrangements um, and uh, potentially. So. Um, okay, so. Um, I think we're pretty, this is pretty much on schedule that I was was planning, um, so this last one is the slides I used with my own um, GIS students. So, it's less of presenting a project, it's more of just getting oriented to a tool, and uh, and so, um, yeah, so you'll, you'll uh, see kind of technically, and I think this will work well, because this will be about like, what does the interface look like, how does it work technically, and then um, Renee talked about when they tried to use it for their project, how it worked, and, uh, Really what that paper is about is a lot of the uh, social challenges around using this and uh, interrelation of the technology and the social dimension. but um, so it's a great compliment. Um, so, how many of you have um, heard of the platform Bushikidi before you read the article we assigned? So, okay, and um, like, what do you know about it, or did, have you studied it in depth, or are you just like, some news, just kind of, yeah?
0: Uh, I've seen it used for political violence in Africa in different elections, and also in Haiti after the major earthquakes there.
1: Okay. A couple other people. Anybody studied it in a class as a case, or this is more like you've, you've seen it discussed? You're good at raising hands, and then good at putting them down. Pretending <laughs> raising hands. So, uh, okay. So, ushiki is a Swahili word that stands for testimony or witness. I've read. And um, it was created um, uh, in Kenya by uh, uh, coders and activists after a contested election where there's a lot of violence at the polls um, directed towards certain voters. And so what they wanted to create was a, a technology to collect points and visually put them on a map and visualize them um, in a systematic way. And so this basic technology has been uh, applied uh, in, in a lot of different contexts. And one of the most famous examples was, uh, yes, and after the Haiti earthquake. And um, uh, this is a short video that, that uh, describes uh, kind of what they did. Uh, the past 10 days has literally revolutionized humanitarian response. <laughs> Never in the past we've been able to deal with this information vacuum in the 1st twenty-four seventy-two hours where there's just no information, everybody's scrambling, nobody knows what to send, how much to send, what happened, really what the extent of the impact is. In large part, thanks to Ushimita's approach to information collection, I mean, we were able to fill that gap about a couple hours after we was
2: basically
1: watching CNN or whatever. In the news. I do really called that? David Columbia. Uh So, Patrick.
2: Or, you know, to them, instance, for 80, all in all, it took about an hour to throw results. Um became in the by traffic after that, which we were highly improved. Uh our servers kept crashing
1: constantly. So this gave us an opportunity to really learn by doing. Um and this has been tremendous for us able to really add features that have been necessary from the beginning, uh but just haven't been there. How many software developers have a chance to work with the state department or work with the coast guard to tell them, hey, you know, there's somebody stuck under, you know, a collapsed wall somewhere, here's their phone number, here's where they think they are, go find them. It. It's just so remarkable, We should be as an in African innovation, So here we
2: are, at least I am in Washington, D.C., using this innovation coming from Africa to try to help people in Haiti and leveraging volunteers all around the world, I mean, it's really a flag. So as we started to work together, realizing here's a great example of ordinary people together doing an extra thing. We had an urgent request for a school in near York Floyd, hundreds of trapped children. The SAR team had originally been sent out by UN Dispatch. They'd gotten to the location and realized it was a wrong location, and I ended up being able to give them an extremely accurate location. Our team made it out and um, they, they managed to rescue um, some of the children that were, were trapped in that. But, that thing, um, but it's, it's really hard and totally heartbreaking to be being these to a team. It's literally like in of situations people are dying. And the faster you can get people onto the ground, the faster you can get them, get them help. And that's one of the reasons why I'm still here.
1: So that's a little overview of um, kind of an emotional take on what they what they did. I <laughs> think yeah. So, who are you? i Patrick about the director of with um... autoplay in action. <laughs> we, I was amused by the federal government woman. I said, It didn't take Ushahidi for me to know that you were bad at technology. But anyway, uh, they, they embraced it. Um, and so, okay, how does this tool work? We've got a sense of how it's been used. Um, so they now, so is an open source tool, and um, there's a Planning class at Columbia before Sarah Williams went to MIT, and she would have her planning students install it and spin up an installation. So it can't be that hard to do, uh, but it's been transitioned to being also being a hosted platform, um, which means that like um, a lot of these tools, you can sign up for an account and begin using it very quickly. Um, and so, um, so the, they've now rebranded it to be CrowdMap. Um, I think that's unfortunate. I kind of like this view, it, but it's okay. So. Um, and uh, there's a posted, there's a, a free version um, available online. And so they now have two versions. They have uh, this newer release, and they have something they call Crowdmap Classic. And so Crowdmap Classic, um, I'd love to point out, it, it defaults to Nairobi, which I think any tool that defaults there is, is, is it shows where the heart is. And um, you can see the initial kind of installation. that looks a lot like these kind of crisis. Uh, uh, response tools, there's a set of categories of the reports, there's a map, um, there's some general statistics. Uh, we, so, anyone can submit a report. Um, the way this is used for Haiti or in the field of Africa is in combination with something called Frontline SMS, which is a software program. You, in essence, get a mobile phone with a local number, you plug it into a laptop, you publicize the number of the phone, text sent to that phone are routed through Frontline SMS into the server. So, Takes a little bit of doing um, the paper we assigned discusses that how that was a little bit technically challenging. But when you're working with populations where um, you um, have smartphones or people can use web forms to kind of avoid that. And so um, this is a recording form. It's just kind of like a basic form. Um, it enables you to either drop a pin, or actually, there's a couple drawing tools. You can draw a polygon or um, you know, draw a different spatial representation of what you're your reporting provide um, a variety of, of fields of information. Um, so when you, after you've signed up, you'll have access to your own admin dashboard, just like the guys that laying in the coffee shop, that'll be you, they the back end. And uh, so this one, I signed up, so there was no reports, so there was kind of no statistics, but you can see it just enables you to monitor what's happening. And more importantly, I think um, it enables you to customize the reporting field and the categories and the kind of taxonomy that's being used to be appropriate for the applications you have in mind. And so this is the reporting form. Um, and it's not quite as uh, flexible as SurveyMonkey, but they, the options are text field, uh, date field, radio button, checkbox, drop down on debugger. So uh, you, know, you do have some, uh, some different options to get um, structured. And we can see there's a variety of other functionality I'm not. I'm not really going to describe, but it's a you know pretty fully functional tool. Um, so once you've signed up online and spun up one of these, you can um, take advantage of the existing MushiPiti web apps. So these are screenshots from the older iPhone app. I think it's still in the iPhone store. was right? an Android app. And the neat thing about this is because you're using existing technology is, Um, To plug in your installation, you just put the name and the URL, just the straight web URL, and then the app kind of does the rest, so there's no complex fine-tuning. And in this case, I linked it to my installation, and all I had was the first uh, uh, demo report in Nairobi, and then I had posted this test report at the office I was working in, of, you know, just a poster leaning against the wall, and so the app has this integrated uh, photo capability as well, so that being sent out to the server. Um, so this is not, not only just text reports, but potentially uh, photos as well. And then, um, you know, being, you can navigate through the different reports. So the reports are kind of public by default. Um, and then I think the only other thing I want to mention here is, um, so I, I don't know what's going on with them. I can only imagine that there's probably not a ton of money in crisis mapping. so they. They kind of refactored their tool, and the best way I can explain it is they kind of want to be like a geospatial Twitter, but they sort of failed to fully realize that, I think. And so the new crowd map looks like this. um, See, I circled it here, it's asking for my location. um, And then um, you can post, uh, It's integrated with the Foursquare Place database, uh, and then you can post a response, but it's, see this pin is kind of hidden under this very artistic shading and this is the, uh, the text box to put the but, um, but anyway, I found it very frustrating and not, not useful. Um, and so I think because of that, there's been a backlash. And so even though they announced their retirement that Classic a long time ago, it's still online, it's still usable, and hopefully the, the right will win, and you'll never lose Crowdback Classic. But I think it's like all of these, um, or like many of these tools, and we alluded to this, um, if they're hosted on the web and outside of our control, we have to remain flexible. And the owners or uh, the companies that, that produce them can change their terms and change how they work. Uh, it is nice, though, you know, if you had a big enough budget or were serious about it, that you could access the code, and install your own, um, and therefore have control of uh, it. Yeah. So my thought was, uh, you could sign up at Crowdmap and then go. Uh, I'm recommending Classic, but you could. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they fixed the interface problems here and. and um, take a look at either side and uh, look through some of the functionality, think about how you might use it. Um, before we do that, are there any questions or thoughts about um, this software tool or how it's used? Is it to so the kind of gap between people looking at this and saying, "Oh, we should definitely do this," and then you you spin up the technology, and then there's like, how do you actually get people to use it? <laughs> well, I talked a little bit in, about it in the paper, but I'll just give you one example. Mm-hmm. That in CrowdMap, so CrowdMap, classic CrowdMap, and of course, all sorts of things broke when it came to the short message service integration. So, we take a lot for granted with smartphone integration, but lots of people in
2: Canada don't have smartphones because our plans are very, very expensive. So, when we go to short messaging services, is the moment you have to worry about modems and you have to worry about data plans on those modems. Uh, It's very expensive to have data the new one we created is, I think it's generating a call to Sweden. Uh, So you have to reverse engineer some of that. And the best you can come up with is the calls go to the U.S. But then what do you do? In Canada, we have created an international roaming problem. And then international roaming problem for some people is going to occur on their sending side as well as the receiving side. So the, these cra- these integrated texting mapping pl- platforms, which is what the crowd map crisis mapping stuff is, can be a lot more in trouble. They, they sell it as much easier than it actually is. Patrick Mayer and all those guys, they're all techies. They are not community activists. They are
1: not the people we heard from yesterday this Yeah, and I think the the crisis applications of the, the tool creators can um, minimize the importance of motivation because the motivation is intrinsic or obvious to the participants at the time. But to use this tool for a, a crisis which is more slow burning, that's where we we need to apply some of our creativity about how to motivate. Uh, engagement interest in
3: there,
1: I, I would say. So uh, it has a lot of potential, but I have the the civilian applications of this I've seen are, are quite limited for that reason, even though it uh, facilitates kind of information sharing quite readily. Quite if um, you can get over some of the technical problems. Other thoughts about this? So um, the question is, and I think maybe one, one other comment I was going to offer. So the video didn't explain, why did we go from Haiti to the Fletcher School of in Boston? So, well, okay, the people who had professional experience in crisis response were in graduate school, it's a very well known international relations graduate school, Tufts. And uh, and so I think it kind of even illustrates the effort wasn't based where I guess the, the developers were based in Atlanta. It's based where the people who are experts at linking between the, the crisis aid organizations that were using it um, and had enough skill to run the technology where they were based. And so they ended up setting up this boiler room and uh, working with the ex- expat community to certain extent in Boston on translation issues, et cetera. But it still was kind of crisis professionals for, for a reason. So you are now the the uh, crowdsourcing professional. Uh, or will be in, you know in, in, in that role and so it's, it's, so it's interesting to think about do i have the
0: skills and resources Geothoughts are brought to you by geothink.ca and generous funding from Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council